impetuous by nature. Uh, others are more staid, maybe more cautious uh, or simply laid back. But whether you are impulsive or demure, <laughs> there are certain times or certain moods which come upon us when we speak or act almost by reflex. Uh, sometimes that impulse uh, leads us to, into something that's not good. Uh, we complain about the driver in the next car, or we yell at the kids when we should have been more reasoned, if there was even a problem to begin with, and not just a manifestation of our own bad mood. Or we grumble at our spouse because we were expecting one thing when we walk through the door, maybe a nice supper or a cheery hello, and we got another thing, cold leftovers with a note uh, on the fridge telling us the food was inside or a whiny baby is put into our arms. Other times, though, our spontaneous response is a good thing for us and for others. We, we smiled when the driver in that other car smiled at us and unexpectedly waved us in front of him or her, and we waved back. Or our child meets us at the door holding up a history test that they aced after having complained about having to study for it and philosophizing about how utterly unimportant the subject is anyway. <laughs> And when they tell, show us that A and we give them a high five, our spouse greets us and says how glad they are that you're home and how much they missed you. And you realize all of a sudden just how much you love your family, even if the baby is crying and even if there are leftovers and they're still in the fridge. Spont oh, thank you. My goodness. Do I have to start over? Thank you. Kids, go. Well, maybe you want to stay and hear this. I was wondering who you were waving at. I've done that before, but it's been about three years, I think, since I've done that. I'm seeing you waving over there. I'm thinking, who's over there that you want to get to? Oh, oh, like I'd see the guy in the cave, right? Oh, he was even out here. I'm oblivious. What can I tell you? <laughs> Do I have to start over? You kind of remember where we were, I hope. But anyway, these are spontaneous responses. And, and the good ones are good for us and they're good for other people. It's the kind of thing that we want to encourage in our own selves and in others. And the passage uh, that we're going to look at today really helps us uh, in that. It, it's uh, Paul's response 
to something, and, and that passage helps us to understand this kind of spontaneous response. Uh, that's a, a good thing, right? And the passage we're going to talk about is found once again in the book of Romans in chapter 11, where we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 36. So I want to invite you to join me there, if you would, and, and of course we'll have the uh, the, mess, the uh, uh, text up on the screen on either side of me. So uh, just to kind of put things into context, we spent, I, I don't know how many weeks now it is, talking about the things in chapters 9 through 11 uh, in this particular book. And in these chapters, Paul has has given us a kind of a glimpse behind the scenes of a, of a kind of great drama that is unfolding all around us as God works to bring salvation to the lost world. Uh, we glimpse God's heart through uh, Paul's own heart, and we realized uh, once again the uh, the intense desire that God has for all people to come to Christ. And, and we learned uh, what we already knew, that salvation isn't by birth or, or uh, any good thing we do, our works are about us, but it's about the, by the promise and through the call and into faith. And that God is always just in all of his acts. And God is revealed as the creator having absolute rights over his creation and he patiently endures the lost as he reveals his glory and prepares to save for all that's to come. And Paul, using the Old Testament, showed us that it has always been part of God's plan to use the Gentiles once Christ had accomplished his work and then to it's made clear to us that everyone, everyone, Every person in this room, everyone is brought to a face-to-face encounter with Christ. And that we are all shut up into disobedience so all can experience God's mercy. And when Paul had finished telling us about all of these things, he did two things. First, he worshipped God. Now, this glimpse behind the scenes inspired Paul to worship the living God. It was a spontaneous thing, and it was in response to the truth. And the second thing that he did in the text we're looking at was to invite us to do the same, to worship the living God. And so as Paul worships God here, he tells us five things about him. The list isn't exhaustive, but it's a fitting conclusion to all that he's been talking about. And the first thing that Paul expresses as he worships our God is that God knows everything, and he knows it completely. There's something more about his knowledge which is implicit in what Paul says here, and which uh, really grows out of all that we've looked at in these three chapters. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But, but first, we're going to look at the knowledge itself as we look at the first half of verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You know, God knows everything. Theologically, we call that omniscience. There is nothing which God does not know, and everything which can be known is known by him. And from the text, we know his knowledge is not superficial. It's not shallow. It's deep. 
He doesn't just know about. He knows fully or completely. And his knowledge is abundant. It's like a fountain overflowing, and it's rich beyond compare. He not only knows things, but he's wise. He knows how to use the things that he knows. God knows everything, and he knows it completely, and he knows how to use it. Now, don't you, like me, enjoy talking to someone who is an expert or at least knows a lot about their chosen field? I mean, I really enjoy that personally. And it's especially true when, when they are able to talk about the things that they know in a way that helps you to understand it at least a little bit. And they can do that because they know what they're talking about. But they also know what we don't know, right? They know the things that we don't know. And so they break down that knowledge that they have into, into little bite-sized pieces for us. So when Frank Day waxes eloquent about DNA, though you're not a biologist, you understand something about it. Or Brad Martin can tell you uh, about computer security, something you probably don't think much about beyond having bought some software and hoping that it works. But he can talk to you in a way that you begin to have some small insight into what he does. And both of them can and have used that knowledge that they have and, and, and helped us to understand it, but then they can apply it to our faith and help us to understand our Christian faith. Ann and I uh, don't come from military families, and we're learning all about it now since we have a son and a daughter and a, that are now serving. We're not directly part of the military, never will be. Uh, we know it only by proxy through Bo and Addie. And yet I'm learning things about order and sacrifice and service and commitment that speaks to my faith. I, I feel as though when I have these interactions with people that I'm a, a richer person for it. I, I share in a small degree in their knowledge. And that's what's implicit in, in this truth. That God not only knows everything, but he shares that knowledge with us. Not everything, no. We could never take it in. None of us here will know all that Frank and Brad know, how much less all that God knows. But God reveals his truth to us in, in a way that we can understand, that helps us to become what he designed us to be. Anne and I, as I said, will never be in the military, but someone who was younger, having heard the kinds of things that we've heard from Bo and Addie, would be better prepared if they ever joined the service. You know, God's knowledge, which he shares with us, is like that. It's not just that we know. It's preparing us for our forever home, telling us how to act. What we, the truth is, so we know how to think and think rightly, which affects who we are and how we act. But, but we can never get there on our own. If we're to know these things, God has to reveal them to us. 
That's what the second half of verse 33 says. And we're going to read that whole verse right now. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. You see, you and I could never discover the truths that God reveals in his word unless he revealed them to us. I mean, we can discover things about biology or math using the gifts that God has given us. God's built that universe so that we can do those very things. There are things about human nature or psychology or sociology which we can learn, we can study, and we can learn. And, and uh, from our investigation of those things, though there we often uh, misinterpret the things that we say. But spiritual truth, which is far more important than all of that other stuff, is simply not discoverable by our human investigation. For one thing, our sin blinds us. It's more than that. But that in itself would be enough to explain it. You see, spiritual truths have to do with God and our relationship with him. And God made us, and he made this world that we live in since he's here, but he's not part of it. He's simply beyond our comprehension unless he reveals himself to us. And that's the point. He does. He does reveal himself to us through his word. God reveals spiritual truths, things that we could never know on our own. I have to tell you the prime example of this, uh, uh, this is the incarnation, you know, God becoming a man. Actually, one person of the Trinity, the Son, became a man to fulfill the Father's will and pour out the Spirit upon us. And it doesn't stop there. This man, who, who was God, became a man, and he was tempted in every way that we are, but he was without sin. And he came into our world in order to die at our hands when we were his enemies. He did that so he could save us from our sins. That's not the kind of thing that we could make up. You know, when we make up gods, and we do, I mean, the world is full of gods that people have made up. We make them powerful and great. It would never enter our minds to, to make them humble like Jesus was. The things we make up are displayed in the false religions of the world. In Greek mythology, gods became men and women all the time. They were every bit as capricious and sinful as we are. In fact, maybe a bit more so because of their power. Other false religions justify or excuse our sin or our hatred. Or they exalt us beyond what we deserve or what's true. <laughs> Or they apply some kind of a salve to our conscience, which doesn't really heal the sin. It just takes a sting out of it for a little while until it all comes crashing down on our heads. But God, the true God, the only God, had a plan to save us. We, we could have never discovered that on our own. We couldn't invent it. We wouldn't know it, but he's revealed it to us in his word. God knows it all. He knows it completely. He knows how to communicate his knowledge to the human heart. He knows what knowledge we need, and he reveals it to us. He tells us about things like righteousness, which we aren't, not yet, but we're being prepared for it. 
He tells us about mysteries beyond our ability to truly understand, but which we really need, that somehow works in our hearts and souls and changes us and makes us into different people. He knows what we need, and he knows how to help us. Now, as I say, that these are really wonderful truths. And as Paul exalts God here, he himself is caught up in that exaltation. Uh, have you experienced that? Have you experienced what it's like to, to taste that God is good and to just worship him and, and find that you're caught up in that? You exalt and you exult, right? You're caught up in that worship. But it's Paul is worshiping here as he's doing that very thing. He remembers, and he remembers it very well, his place, his real position. And, and we need to remember it too. Now, Paul reminds us here in this text that we're looking at that we're created beings whom God allows to share in his completeness. So in verse 34, we read, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Now, you and I as believers know some really wonderful things, and we, we ought to share them with other people. But we were made by God, and it's by God's grace that we share in him and in his things. And no one has ever been God's counselor. No one knows more than God knows. No one knows as much as God knows. All of our wisdom, all of our knowledge, as far as it's wisdom and knowledge that's real, it's derived from God. Even those things that we can discover on our own are derived from God and from his universe and from the intelligence that he gave us. But the danger is, especially for those of us who know these spiritual truths, the danger is, is because of our sinfulness, our knowledge, even the knowledge of good and beautiful things can puff us up. It can make us proud in ways that we ought not to be. You've heard of the Pharisees. That was their problem. It goes beyond that, you know. You see, real knowledge comes from God and it, it engenders it. it. It produces, it causes, it creates, it begets a real humility. And so in verse 34, we read Paul, uh, Paul uh, as he expands on his statement, expressing humility, uh, which is proper to who we are as creatures, completely and utterly dependent on God. We read these words, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? God made everything that is. He made us. Uh, the, the things that we do or think or discover or make all uh, come from his image in us. And they were in him first and they come from him. And they only flow through us. And spiritual truth can only be known as God reveals it to us. We can offer nothing to God that has not first come from him through us. He needs nothing from us, for he's full, and he's complete, and he's content without us. Nothing that we can give him or offer him puts him in our debt. Anything that we might offer him is only what we already owe him, including giving him our lives and the lives we love. Everything we have 
including all which we might have gotten through our own labor, came from him. He can owe us nothing, and we owe him everything. That is the truth. That's real humility. And that comes from a real knowledge of God as we let it enter our heart and change who we are as a people. And something happens when that humility is kind of born in us or encouraged in us. So when we have it, it's by God's grace as he reveals it, but then we see something. We we know something. We know that God is almighty God complete in himself. The beginning of verse 36 says this, for from him and through him and for him are all things. You see, God is almighty God, so complete in himself that he overflows. He creates, he sustains, he orders, he redeems, he sanctifies, he glorifies. He will complete his purpose for this creation. Everything that is comes from God, and it comes through God, and it's for God. Everything. Everything. God has always been complete. The love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for one another was ever flowing, ever in. Uh, a fact of all eternity. And out of this overflowing love, God made creatures like us. He made you and me so we could share in his love so that we could be loved and so that we could love him in return. The great I am, self-existent, eternal, holy, and loving God is the ground of all being. Nothing exists without him or other than him or beside him. All comes from him, goes through him, returns to him. That, that is a God. (laughs) And as he thought about these truths, Paul, after he had talked about that drama that was happening in the world around us, as God was seeking people, as he thought about those things, it, it inspired it in a spontaneous way and yet recorded for us in Scripture this worship of the living God by Paul. And he invites others to do the same. He, he invites all people to worship the living God. That's the second half of verse 36. To him be glory forever. Amen. Oh, <laughs> Our response ought to be to give glory to God. But whether we do or not, we understand it is his. The glory flows from him and through him and is for him. How, how could it be anything else? God is complete. He creates. He shares. How could you not worship and glorify him? And this amen here, that last word in this, uh, in this text, is a call to agree. It, it's the period at the end of the sentence. It's a submission to the truth and the God of all truth. God deserves our worship. Nothing and no one else does. 
world around us worships all kinds of things. And because of the sin in us, we're tempted to worship other things. But only God deserves that. He is so good. with us he has paid for our sins he has opened the door into the kingdom he's put his spirit in us he's given us his word he's put us in a church where we can know one another and through knowing one another grow in our relationship with God that is our And he's worthy of everything that we can give him. You know, one of the ways that we do worship God is when we gather around a table like this. You know, there was a Passover supper. Many of you know what that is, right? If you're, even if you're new to the faith, you've heard about the Jewish Passover. It commemorated when the angel of death passed over the houses of the Jewish people before they were set free from Egypt. The blood was on the doorposts of the house, and so that angel passed over. And and they celebrated that, the Jews, in this uh, Passover Seder. And Jesus took that, and then he gave it its real, its full, its complete meaning. In that when the blood of Christ is over us, and nothing but the blood will do, then death passes us by because we belong to God both now and forever. And this table reminds us of that. The body of Jesus broken for us, the blood of Christ shed to pay for our sins. And so if you're here today, even if you're not a member of this church, if you know Christ in that way, if you've put your faith in him, your trust in him, if you know your sins are forgiven, if you can say he's my friend, then again, if you're not a member of this church, it doesn't matter, you can partake of this meal with us. And if, you, if you're here and, and you do know him, but you're living in um, sin, you haven't repented of, you, you've got to let the bread and the cup pass you by. I mean, the word's very clear on that. It's a very serious matter because if you eat and drink in those uh, situations, uh, you bring judgment upon yourself. Or if you have a continuing animosity between you and another Christian that you haven't tried to make right, you have to let it go by you too. And again, I I, I say this all the time, but I have to say it. Nobody's going to draw attention to it. Nobody's going to come tell me about it. It's an honorable decision between you and God. And if you are here today and you don't know Christ in that way, then I'm going to ask you, too, to let the bread and cup pass you by. We don't want to exclude you. This is a, this is a family meal. It's a meal for us who are part of the family of God. Nothing more than we want than to, to have you to be a part of that. But it is a matter of faith in the living but otherwise, we want you to drink and eat with us. We, we serve the bread and the 
hold it until all are served. We eat together and we do the same thing with the cup. So I have some guys that are going to help me this morning. 